Welcome to Two Cities Church and to our online worship gathering. My name is Kyle Mercer. I'm one of the pastors here. And we planted this church, it'll be four years ago in September. And when I went to seminary and when I was a part of the church planting residency at the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, uh, they did not have a class. They did not have a session on what do you do when you find yourself in a global pandemic and you have to be online only as a church. But that's where we find ourselves. And we thought when we first kind of realized we were going to have to be online, we thought it was going to be two weeks. Now it's been over two months. Uh, If you've been following along with us, we have been online only trying to do completely just digital discipleship since March 15th. And so we're, gonna, we're continuing in this season. And let me just tell you one thing. We, we, it's been longer than we thought, but we've learned more. And, and let me just tell you some encouraging things we've seen in this season. Uh, number one, we've seen how strong our church is, the, the church in America, but particularly Two Cities Church has been. The church was immediately scattered in, in our groups, our community groups uh, are doing incredibly well. I want to let you know that this week we were able to have a Zoom call with uh, over 50 people on that call, the leaders of our community groups, checking in on how you're doing, how we can be praying for you, sharing encouraging stories, and then talking about how can we better lead and shepherd in this season. And and let me just tell you where we're going moving forward. Uh, Our hope, our plan, our prayer is to, this coming week, to release a short video that's going to begin to talk about how we're praying and planning to reopen the church. Now, we're going to reopen the church in phases. I'll tell you, I'm not going to get into that all right now. Uh, I'll tell you more about that on the video. And we have more clarity on the early phases than we do the late phases. And this isn't going to be necessarily a promise of how we're going to be able to open the church as much as it's a tentative plan. But here's what we're asking. Would you continue to pray with us as we plan on what is going to be the wisest, most helpful way to reopen the church? Because the church needs to be reopened. Uh, There are people uh, who have met Jesus uh, online through this season. They need to be baptized. They need to be engrafted and enfolded into the life of the local church. And we are eager to gather together again to pray, to sing, to worship, to be in this room again. So let's pray for that day to come soon. And we're going to release a plan on what we're praying and thinking toward in this next week. Would you pray with me? Um, Lord, I just come to you right now in Jesus' name. And we ask for wisdom. Lord, we find ourselves... Uh, in a season that our parents and our, great, or, and our grandparents did not have to go it through, a season where the church was not able to gather. It's been 100 years since this has happened. Lord, we have found ourselves in this season for months, and now we are asking for wisdom. We're asking for wisdom on um, how to reopen the church, how to care for the vulnerable, how to continue to minister to people who won't be able to attend, but how to open the church so that people can meet Jesus and be made into his disciples. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we are back in the book of Galatians, and uh, if you've been following along, here's what we do here as a church. We walk through books of the Bible, verse by verse, line by line, word by word, and here's what we've been doing. We've been looking at this book of Galatians, one of the most impactful and powerful books in the entire Bible, written by a guy named the Apostle Paul, and what we do here is practice something called expositional preaching, and you can see the root word in there is expose. What I want to do, what we want to do here is to expose what does the Bible say, which means that oftentimes we'll be introduced to ideas and topics that we would have otherwise never talked about. And here's what we've seen in the book of Galatians so far, just to catch everybody up, because one of the joys of expositional preaching and walking through books of the Bible is you actually get to see an argument from uh, conception to the end of that argument. And so here's what's happening here. In chapters one and two, Paul's incredibly personal. He talks about the grace of God in his life. 
He says, here's how Jesus saved me. Here's how Jesus changed me. Uh, Here's my ministry. Here's my message. Here's my heart for you. Here's my concerns. Uh, Here's kind of the history of what God's done in my life. Okay, that's one and two. Everybody loves those chapters. We just got out of chapters three and four. Chapters three and four, they're very theological. They're very historical. Also incredibly important, though most people skip over these, and most times when people preach through books of the the Bible and and the book of Galatians, they don't often deal enough with Galatians three and four uh, because it's deep and it's dense. Uh, We just got out of the woods of talking about covenant, promise, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac. I mean, just lots of topics. And now in chapters five and six, where we're going to be for the next few weeks, and I'm real excited, is we're going to be highly practical, highly applicable, but we couldn't start there. We had to get there. And you get there by first dealing with the theological and the personal, because what's going to sustain, what's going to motivate long-term faithfulness in the Christian life is deep theology and then being able to live it out. Uh, Too many people, maybe some of you, you you want to immediately get to, well, uh, what about my finances, and what about my marriage, and what about my kids, and what about my addiction, and what about my emotions, and what about my struggles? Well, God cares about all those things, but we have to start with the why. We have to go deep into what God has said, and then we're going to practically live it out. And, and so what I want us to do is I want us to turn to Galatians chapter 5, and starting in verse 1, I just want to read this. This is, many consider this the theme book, or the, the theme verse for the book. Uh, here's what they say, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. For freedom, and Americans love freedom, right? We've got a holiday coming up in two months all about freedom. Uh, we love economic freedom. We love religious freedom. We love uh, you know, economic uh, freedom. We love financial freedom. We love freedom of the press. We love freedom of speech. We love freedom to assemble. We love freedom. Well, here's what he says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. He uses freedom both as a noun and as a verb. And then he says this, stand firm. So in other words, you can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your freedom in Christ. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Here's the big idea for this message and for this chapter today. It's this, you have been set free to live free. If you are a Christian, you have been set free. There is a freedom in Christ, a spiritual freedom and a soul freedom that is given to you when you give Jesus your sin and yourself, and it is something that you are to live in. Now, here's the problem. Many Christians have been set free, but they're not living free. It's like the people of Israel. If you've ever read the story of the people of Israel, here's what happens. Uh, They're under Pharaoh, which he's a ruler. Uh, They're enslaved. They don't like it. And then God says, says to Moses and sends Moses to free them. And then they get into the wilderness. And what happens after they've been set free? It's the story of your life. It's the story of my life. They've been set free, but they're not living free. They were set free. Why? What does God say? Let my people go. Why? That they may worship me. But they were not living free. Instead, they start worshiping idols, which is what we do with our freedom often. We'll get there. Uh, Or they start romanticizing their past. Oh, I remember what it was like before I was a Christian. I could do whatever I wanted, and I gave in to all these pleasures, and wasn't it great to be back in Egypt? And that's kind of what happens in Israel. And so Paul is incredibly passionate, and I'm incredibly passionate Uh, for you, that you would live free because you have been set free. Now, my concern and what I know to be true and what you know to be true about yourself is that many times I don't feel like I've been set free. Uh, I don't feel like I'm living free. Do you feel like you're always living free? You're you're called to live free. You're called to be able to live with a clear conscience. You're called to be able to live uh, not under guilt and shame. You're called to no longer live under the approval of man, but for the approval of God. And this is something that Paul is incredibly passionate about. In fact, look again to verse 1. Here's what he says. He tells us what Christ has done and who has set us free. Verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Jesus Christ comes into the world, and his main mission is spiritual freedom. 
that what he wants to do, and this is why he has a teaching, preaching, healing ministry, he comes, and what does he say in John chapter 8? I just want to pick up one verse. In John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus says this. Verse 8, 32, he says this. You, you've heard this. Maybe you didn't know Jesus said it. Here's what he says. Jesus says this, and you will know the truth. What is truth? That which corresponds to reality. And God's word is truth. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The way that you experience freedom is by listening to what Jesus said. Right? By the way, that's what confession is. Confession is, I agree with God. <laughs> I agree with what God has said about me. I agree with what God has said about sin, and I want to live in the reality of what Jesus Christ has said. So Jesus Christ comes, and he comes to tell us the truth so that we would have soul freedom. And there's three freedoms that Christ gives us, and I want to talk about these. And these categories have been helpful for me. I think they're going to be very helpful for you. Here's the three categories. I'll just give them to you, and then we'll talk about them. You've been set free from the penalty of sin, if you're a Christian. You are progressively being set free from the uh, pollution and power of sin, and then one day when you die or Christ returns, you'll be set free from the presence of sin. Let me just talk about these. Because this is why Jesus Christ came. Primarily, he came to set you free from the penalty of sin. Uh, when there must be, there will be a penalty for your sin. There is a punishment for your sin. There are two options. You pay for it forever in hell. Would not recommend that option. Option two is you trust Christ and realize that he has paid for it on the cross for you in your place. This is the heart of the gospel is what Christians and theologians have called substitutionary atonement. I know it's a big phrase, but what it means is that Jesus Christ was your substitute and he was not just an example, but a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. That's the heart of it. And here's why this is good news. Um, if Jesus Christ paid the penalty of sin, you don't have to keep beating yourself up over it all the time. You don't have to keep, uh, you actually know where to place your guilt, where to place your shame. It doesn't mean that you're not a sinner. It, knows, it means that you know what to do with your sin. Uh, the reason that there's such freedom in realizing that Christ paid the penalty for your sin, here's what it means. You can actually say, be honest and go, I can come out of hiding. I can stop being a hypocrite. I can be honest about how big of a sinner I am. I'm not just a mistaker. I don't just have accidents and indiscretions. I am a real sinner who does things God hates and does things that often hurt people. And I don't want to be like that. And I'm sorry, but I know where to put it. I can put it at the cross of Christ. That's the great hope. And let me just tell you this. Right now, this is amazing. This is the, the power of the gospel. At any moment, you can be freed from the penalty of sin if you're not a Christian. Even as you're listening to me speak right now, if you say, Jesus, I give you my sin, I give you myself, I transfer trust from me to you, I believe that what you did on the cross matters for me, this is the great thing. You can immediately be freed from the penalty of sin. Now, as soon as that happens, the moment that happens, the rest of you, the Christian life is, Lord, would you help me overcome the power and the pollution of sin? Let me just ask you this. Do you want to overcome the power of sin in your life? That is one of the signs that you're born again, that you're spiritually alive that you're really a Christian. You could say, listen, I want to. I want to obey. I don't want to give in to this sin. I want to hate my sin. I want to turn from my sin. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be the godliest version of myself. And, and my concern for you is that many of you have been freed from the penalty of sin. You're really a Christian. You understand the gospel. You've trusted in Christ. You understand substitutionary atonement, but you're not living in the freedom that there is. You're still giving in to the same sins in the same way, making no progress because you haven't realized that here's what happens. When you become a Christian, you get a new relationship with Jesus and you get a new relationship with sin. Both. 
Sin is no longer your master. In fact, what Paul says, he says, he says stand firm and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Here's what he's saying. Um, you're no longer a slave to sin. If you're a slave to sin, it's voluntary. You're choosing to, you're deciding to, you're putting, you're placing, you're positioning yourself back under things that you don't need to do. You never, now you will sin again because we're, we live in a broken fallen world, but you never have to give in to that sin again. That's the power of the gospel. And then finally, the presence of sin is this idea that we should look forward to, we should pray, we should hope toward the day when we will one day be free from the presence of sin, which will be humbling because here's what this means. When Christ returns or when Jesus dies, God will complete in a millisecond what you've been working to do your whole life, which is to, ma- to make you sinless. That's, what, that's the power of the gospel that one day when you, there is no sin in heaven. When you get to heaven, you will be sinless if you've trusted in Christ. You will no longer have divided emotions, divided motivations. You will be a integrated person able to fully love and worship God. That's the freedom that uh, Paul's talking about. But listen, many of you are probably scared <laughs> to live in true freedom, right? The, 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 what, what Paul's gonna say is there are, and he, and he kind of does this in a letter. He says, he says, guys, one of the reasons you're listening to all of these things that the Judaizers are telling you about circumcision and the law is you're not realizing you're free in Christ and instead you just want people to tell you what to do. Which is, by the way, not a healthy place to be in. You don't want to be the kind of person that's just dependent on other people telling you all the time what you can and can't do. True freedom says, I've got the spirit and I have God's scriptures and I'm living in community, but I've got the spirit, I've got the scripture, I'm trying to live my life out. And, and see, what, what a lot of people say is they say, well, just give me a law. Just tell me what I can watch. Don't, don't actually teach me about truth and beauty and wisdom. Um, just tell me what I can eat and drink. Don't teach me about self-control. Don't teach me about moderation. Don't teach me about the goodness of God's creation. Just give me a bunch of rules. Um, don't teach me about modesty. Just tell me exactly what I should, would, what, should dress and how I should, what, what I should wear. Don't teach me about government and politics and what the scriptures say about all of that. Just tell me who to vote for. It's like, well, people feel safe with a bunch of more laws instead of saying, listen, we have an objective word, we have a subjective spirit, and then what I mean by that is the, the, the spirit takes the word of God and applies it personally to my situation, and then I obey and I live out of that. And so Paul is eager for them to have their freedom, and here's what he's gonna say. Here's the next big idea. Don't lose your freedom. Don't lose your freedom. That, that what can happen is you can never lose your salvation. We talk about this all the time. You cannot lose your salvation, but you can lose the freedom that you have in Christ. And I want you to see this. And this starts in verse two. Here's what he says. Look, and that's Paul's way to say, pay attention. He uses that phrase several times in this letter. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and it's like, Paul, why do you keep talking about circumcision? You know, it's like, why are you so obsessed with this medical procedure that removes skin? Well, it's not a medical issue, it's a theological issue. And Paul's not against circumcision per se. Paul himself was circumcised. Later he'll go, it's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. What Paul is passionate about, Paul is passionate about trusting in Christ alone and admitting that there is nothing that you can do or add to your salvation. And for them, it was, it was circumcision, it was Christ plus circumcision. So Paul gets very passionate. He says, look, I say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What does that mean? The power of Christ will not be evident in your life because you're gonna rely on yourself and not on Christ. He says this in verse three. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. Here's what he's saying. That uh, don't try to obey the law and think you can be righteous by it because the truth is, if you're gonna go play, if you're gonna play that game, you have to obey all of it. 
and you never can. He says, the way I've heard it described before is this. The law is like a beautiful vase, massive, beautiful, very expensive, very elegant vase, um, and if you crack it in one place, the vase is no longer good. The whole vase is ruined because it's broken or cracked in one place. That's how the law is. Or another way that I've heard it said is, uh, don't think that because you're obeying the law in one area, and you're probably not perfectly obeying it because you're probably not doing it uh, with, to the glory of God with the right motivations, okay, from the pure heart. But let's just say you are in one area. Uh, obeying God's law in one area does not make you free from, uh, f- uh, does not make up for disobeying God in other areas. It, the illustration I've heard before is it's like if you're, if you're driving and the cop pulls you over and you know, you're going 20 miles, I know you would never do this, but you're going 20 miles an hour over, uh, you know, you're going 85 and a 65, and the cop says, hey, I'm pulling you over, you, know, you were going 20 miles over the speed limit, and you say, well, I wanna just tell you something, I've never kidnapped anybody, ever. You know, and, and I've never been to prison, and uh, I've, I've never cheated on my taxes, and you know, the cop's gonna say, well, good for you, and I'm you know, and glad you've never done those things, but obeying in one area doesn't make up for your disobedience in another area. And that's, again, why you have to see that this is what makes Christ so precious, is that he came, and in his sinless life, he obeyed every area of the entire law completely. So Paul Paul warns, look at verse four, you are severed from Christ. Again, he's not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about the communion you had with Christ and the power you had with Christ. He says this, you are severed from Christ, you who are justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. Not the forgiving of grace of God, but the transforming grace of God. What he's saying is, and, I, and this is my concern, so many people, so many churches, especially in America, the, the Christians in them and the churches themselves, and this is gonna be a temptation of our own church, it are ineffective and unattractive because they're relying on themselves instead of relying on Christ. Instead of saying, Christ, I need you. I want the power of the gospel to go deep in me and then I want it to go deep through me. I want to see people meet Jesus. I want to see people be made into his disciples. And so Paul's, Paul's concerned about this. In fact, he, in, in verses two, three, and four, I won't reread them. You can look at them right now. He's warning them. And let me just tell you, warnings are one of the ways that the grace of God comes to us. Uh, there's the love of God. There's three primary ways God motivates you. The love of God, the fear of God, the rewards of God. Well, you need all three of them. If you're gonna live a faithful life, you need to know God loves me. You need to know, you know, what Jesus says, you know, don't store up for yourself, you know, treasures on earth where, you know, moth and rust destroy, but store up treasures in heaven. What is he pointing to? Rewards. So God motivates by reward, he motivates by love, but he also motivates by a healthy fear to say, let me just warn you. Let me warn you, and, and, and we've all done this. You do this to people you love, right? I do this with our kids. Um, all the time, my wife and I, uh, we've got three kids, I talk about them often. You know, they're eight, six, and almost four. Um, we're, we're always warning them. And, and honestly, this is important. We actually warn them every time we give them more freedom in a certain area. You know, uh, my daughter, Addie, she's eight. She loves to ride her bike. She loves to rollerblade. She wants to go into, you know, more areas of our neighborhood and more streets. And it's not a real dangerous area or anything, but as she's gone out further and wants more freedom, we give her more warnings. Hey, you know, when you're on the street, look both ways. If there's a, if there's a, car, if there's a uh, car and it slows down and they, someone tries to talk to you that's a stranger, don't go near them. And we're giving her those warnings, not because we don't love her, but because we love her. We actually want her to have as much freedom as would be appropriate, but we want her to have the correct warnings in place, right? This is what we do in Christian community. We, we are to lovingly, this is what Paul does, and we're, he's an example for us, we're to love, lovingly warn each other of things. This, this, this should be a healthy and helpful part of all Christian community. Occasionally, maybe you say to somebody in your community group, to a brother or sister in Christ in your community group, uh, one of the biggest warnings you can do to them is, hey, let me just tell you where this will go if you don't repent. 
Because you can often see, right? The Bible talks about patterns and paths. And so you can look in someone's life and say, listen, I actually know the type of person that you're going to become. I actually, you're not unique, you're not different, you're not an outlier. I know where marriages like this go. I know where financial decisions like this lead. I know where families that, that treat their kids and, and, and you know, go. I know somebody who travels as much as you do and has absolutely no accountability. I know where that goes. And so what, what Paul does is, and it's, it's great, he actually lovingly is warning the church. And we're gonna actually see that Paul, as we go on, he's actually going to use harsher and harsher language because he loves them. So here's what he says. Let's continue on, verse um, Five, for through the Spirit. Now he's gonna give us real practical. He's gonna say, all right, here's how you stand. Because the whole idea is stand, don't submit to, uh, to a yoke of slavery. He's gonna tell us how to be free. He says, through the Spirit, we already talked about that. The Holy Spirit, we'll talk more about him in the weeks to come. He is the one who actually, you go, well, how do I live a free life? You have to be empowered and filled and led by the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about this. But it says this, for through the Spirit, by faith, and faith, by the way, is the eyesight of the soul, it's the ability to see the invisible world. He goes, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Here's what he's saying. How do you, how do you um, stand in your freedom? He says, first, you have to exercise faith. And here's what faith means. Faith means I am believing what God has said. Let me ask you this. Where are you believing God's word in your life? Where are you going and going, I'm believing what God has said about marriage, for my marriage. I'm believing what God has said that if I, if I confess my sin, he will be faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me. I'm believing what he said, even though I don't feel it right now, I'm believing that I'm, he's never gonna forsake me and he's never gonna leave me. That, that's it. It's, and then he says, he, say, he talks about what faith does in us, right? Faith is a gift from God and, when, and we don't work for our faith, but when, when we have faith, it works in us. And I wanna show you this. This is what it says in verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Paul's like, look, I'm not trying to make a massive deal about circumcision itself, okay? It's just a sign and symbol of a wrong way of thinking. If you're thinking you can be uh, right with God because of circumcision, he says this. But only faith working through love. Here's what he's saying, that if you are truly a person of faith, you will become a more loving person. Are you becoming more loving? I mean, that, that's one of the questions. Some people go, I'm growing in my faith because I read this systematic theology textbook. Well, well maybe, right? People think, I'm growing in my faith because I'm attending more events. Well, maybe. I mean, though, though you can. Those, those things can help you grow. Most people think that what it means to grow in their faith is it means I have more knowledge of the Bible. I now know more things about the New Testament and the Old Testament, which, again, not a bad thing. But actually, one of the signs that you are growing as a Christian is you are becoming a more loving person. What does it mean to love? It means that I care about people more. I care about their temporal needs, their physical needs. I care about their eternal needs. I genuinely care about them, and I'm committed to their good. So one of the questions, you, 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 how do you diagnose, are you growing as a Christian? That's a helpful question. One of the answers is, are you becoming a more loving spouse, a more loving mom, a more loving friend, a more loving father, a more loving husband? A more loving coworker. The more faith that you have, here's how does that work? Well, because the more faith you have, who's your faith in? Jesus Christ. And you realize how much Jesus Christ has loved you. You realize the great extent that he came to you. You realize that he's done everything for you and it, it makes you in your heart a more loving person. It gets into the deep parts of you. And then he says this. He says, you were running well that the Christian life is a race. 
He uses many, many metaphors, but one of them's here, race. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you? The idea here is that, you know, when, when in the Olympic Games back then and today, um, you know, they would often run and they would have their own lane. And the idea here is every once in a while, someone would run into another person's lane to purposely make it more difficult for that person to run and also to hinder them. What he's saying is, hey, listen, Jesus was the guy we're supposed to be following. following. He's way ahead of us in this race. You were doing a good job following him, but somebody came in and they slowed you down. And look what he says. How do you run? Look at verse seven. You were running well. This is why it's important to look at every one of the words of scripture. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What does that mean? That means running well is synonymous with obeying the truth. Do you see that? So it's like, well, what does it mean to run the Christian life? What does it mean to progress make progress in the Christian life. It means I'm obeying more truth. And this is why we talk here about obedience-based discipleship, not knowledge-based discipleship. Um, Knowledge-based discipleship is, again, I kind of mentioned a minute ago, um, I'm learning more things so I'm more mature. Obedience-based discipleship is, listen, I'm trying to obey what God has revealed from Scripture in my life. And I may not know a lot of the Bible, but I'm trying to obey everything that I know, and, and therefore I'm maturing. If you want to grow... In this season or every season, your next step, I actually can tell you what it is. You know what it is. The next step for you to grow is to look at what God's word says and to go, okay, where's my next step to obey this? Where's my next step if I'm going to repent of certain sin? Where's my next step if I'm going to be a more generous person? Where's my next step if I'm going to be a better husband or father or dad or mother or friend or son? And then he says this, and I wanna stop on verse eight and nine because I think it's incredibly important. He says this, this persuasion, and he's talking about the false teaching, False teaching never often comes as commands. It comes as question asking, as persuading. But this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This isn't from God. He says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Um, The whole idea there is that sin and false teaching, which are both enemies of the church um, and of Christian growth, sin and false teaching, they come in like leaven. And the thing about leaven is it's small and it spreads quickly. And so what do you do? How do you stay free in Christ? You deal with things while they are still small. It's like, you know, you start realizing that you have a problem with lust. What do you do? You deal with it while it's small. You realize you are a very angry person. You realize, I was talking to somebody recently, and this person said to me, I'm, I'm noticing in my heart a root of bitterness, and I want to deal with it. What is that? That's maturity. That's saying, hey, I'm noticing this. I'm, I'm noticing it very early on in my life, and I don't want to notice it seven years from now. When it's, when, it's, when it's got these deep, where it's, not, where it's a deep root of bitterness, it's a, actually, it's not even a root of bitterness, it's a tree of bitterness. Say, I want to deal with it now. And see what happens in this, our, our temptation is to lose our freedom by compromising in small areas of our lives. You know, you just start using, you know, the uh, business account in ways, and your travel account in ways that you shouldn't. Um, you know, you start flirting a little bit and spending a little bit much too much time as a married person with somebody of the opposite sex. You start telling little, what you would call, what I would maybe call sometimes, little lies. Little lies about our lives. And it's hard, to, at first you kind of have a check in your spirit, but then it becomes easier and easier to lie. I, I heard one counselor, he said one time, he's a well-known counselor, actually it was Paul David Tripp, heard him say one time that every issue that he's ever seen in marriage counseling and individual counseling could have been dealt with just with a few friends on a couch in a house if it had been dealt with early and often. But what happens is things get convoluted and complex and complicated when we allow time and we don't deal with them. So he's saying, deal with it now while it's small. That's what he's saying. 
That's how you keep your freedom in Christ. And then he says this. He's confident. He said some hard things, but he's confident. He says this, I have confidence in the Lord. Ultimately, I believe you're going to do the right thing. This is what's so powerful. You know, if we can learn to, to have Christian community where it's like, listen, I'm going to say some hard things to you. But, I, you know, actually, I believe, and I'm going to give you God's word, and I'm going to pray for you. And I don't mean that in any kind of, I'm not trying to be overly spiritual with you when I say that. You know, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to give you God's word. And I'm actually going to believe that God's going to do the right thing, and you're going to do the right thing. I'm believing, I have confidence in the Lord that you're going to do the right thing. Here's what he says. I have confidence in the Lord that you will make no other view. That God's spirit's working in you, if you're, that God's word will be powerful to you. He says this, and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And then verse, uh, verse 11, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, and circumcision, by the way, would have been a popular message that people wanted to hear. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, guys, I cannot just preach what is popular. Um, I have to say things that you don't want to hear. What Paul does often is he says, I have to say hard words so that we will have soft people. I have to say things that you don't want to hear, but things that you need to hear. Here's what he says. Brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? He says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Here's the thing. Christianity, um, the main message of Christianity of Christianity, the cross of Christ and the empty tomb, it is offensive. It is. Now, we as messengers of that message, me as a messenger of that message, I don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. I want to talk about it in the most winsome and kind ways possible, but the message itself is offensive. Here's why. Because here's what the cross says. You cannot save yourself. The cross says, it says two things simultaneously. Um, you are so loved by God that Jesus would come and die for you. It's like, well, that's great. And also it tells us you are so sinful that Jesus Christ had to die for you. God's son had to be crucified. That's how terrible your sin is. It tells you, hey, you're not outside the grace of God no matter what you've done. That's the good news of the gospel. But it also confronts us and says, listen, you're never, ever good enough that you're beyond the grace of God and you think that you don't need it. It's such a powerful message that you are more loved than you ever could imagine and you're more sinful than you could ever imagine. That's, that's the offense, but at, at the same time, the, the offense of the gospel is also the beauty of the gospel. And it's actually what frees you up to say, Jesus Christ is a big savior. I'm fully trusting in him. My sin has fully been dealt with. Therefore, I don't want to go back into sinful slavery, which is why, look what Paul says in verse 12. Paul gets very angry. And this is what happened, right? There is righteous anger. There is such a thing as uh, uh, we want to be tender with people, but we want to be tough for people. And here's what Paul does in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you, and it's the people who are saying you have to be circumcised um, to be a Christian. It's Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus is not enough. It's something else. He goes, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And that makes us uncomfortable. This makes, certain Bible translations are so uncomfortable, they don't even translate the verse. They just translate it. I wish those who would, would maybe your translation says this. I wish those who unsettle you would be cut off. That's not what it says. But it's so shocking because he says, I wish they would emasculate themselves. In other words, he's almost pushing on them going, oh, they think that cutting off a little skin, it makes you righteous with God. Why don't you just cut off everything? He's showing you the absurdity of trying to work your way to God. And also, there's some people who think what he's doing here is also saying, emasculate them because I don't want, this me I don't want them reproducing. I don't, I don't want, he's metaphorically speaking here, but I, I don't want this message getting to anybody else because it's a damning, harmful message. Any message that says you can do something or there's such a thing as self-help and self-salvation does not lead people to actual transformation and actual forgiveness, which leads to his last point, um, 
which is this. He says, don't abuse your freedom. Don't lose your freedom and then don't abuse your freedom. Think about it. Don't lose your freedom is religion. <laughs> if I lose my freedom, I just I trade in my freedom that I had in Christ for a bunch of rules, a bunch of rituals, and a bunch of other people telling me what to do all the time. Uh, I trade in uh, you know, living for God instead to live for man. But then he says, secondly, don't abuse your freedom. Now, what is that? That's the temptation to rebellion. And I want to read this to you. Here's what he says. This is in verse 13. For you were called to freedom. In other words, it's the, it's the heart of the gospel. Christ sets you free. I mean, that's the, one of the first things Jesus says in, in the gospel of Luke is I've come to set the prisoner free. He's talking there about the spiritual prisoner. He says this, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So the freedom is not for your flesh. What is the flesh? It's the part of you that wants to disobey God. It's the part of you that doesn't want to do what God has said and wants to rebel against God's word. He says this, but through love, serve one another. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Um, Here's what Paul's saying. First of all, you're not free to sin. In other words, what Christ does is um, he saves you from something, the penalty of sin, and he saves you for something. That you would live for him, for his glory, for his mission. And, and I want to show you this. In, in Romans 6, Paul has a similar theme that's picked up. Because, you know, oftentimes, different churches can struggle with the same thing. So actually, Paul writes to Rome, the church at Rome about a similar struggle that the church at Galatia also was having. Look at this. Chapter 6 of Romans, verse 1, it should be on the screen, says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then here's Paul's answer to that. By no means, or some translations say, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Here's what he's saying. Um, there were some people who go, look, why can't I just sin? And maybe you've thought that way before. Maybe you've, I've certainly felt that way before. Hey, well, if, I, if, I, if you've ever thought this, you've thought this way. If you've ever thought, I'm going to sin and God's going to forgive me, and I just, that's just how it's going to be. And actually, I actually kind of feel like I can do this because I know God's gracious and I know Christ died for me and I know I'm going to heaven. And so, in fact, what's happened in Romans is is what they were saying was this. Um, Here's what I'll do. I'll sin and I'll even sin boldly. And I'll, I don't even, if I, even if I sin publicly, all it shows is that I'm a sinner and that I need grace and then God will give me grace and he'll look great. And Paul's like, that's not the right logic. The right logic is to look at the cross and go, that's what sin does to people. Sin killed my savior. How could I continue to do the very things for which Christ died? That when you look at the cross, you actually see how much God loves you, and you actually see how terrible sin is. And so Paul says, don't do that. And then he says, look at verse 15 here. In verse 15 he says, but if you bite and devour one another, he's saying, here's here's the other thing, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He's saying that here's what happens, that oftentimes what happens in people's lives is they start to feel like they can do whatever they want and they start taking advantage of people. That this is the, bite and devour is the language of being, it's animalistic language. It's, you know, this is what King David in one of his uh, Psalms talked about how when he was given over to sin, he said, I felt like I was a beast before the Lord. Like I was a wild animal. That what happens is, is people who go into rebellious lifestyles, what they, they, they start to do is they start to use people. And they start to compare, they start to compete, they start to try and conquer. And what he's saying is when that happens, then the Christian community consumes itself and it's no longer a bright and salty light for other people. That what Christians need to do is we actually don't need to fight with each other. We need to begin to fight for each other. 
And this is why verse 14 is a good summary of what freedom is. He basically tells us in verse 14 that your liberty should be used to love others. Let me read it to you, verse 14. For the whole law, and that's a lot of the Bible. It's like 613 laws, I want to say. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What he's saying is God gives us freedom. God gives us liberty so that we can love him and love others. And it's incredible. We talk about this all the time. It's I, it's I get to, I don't have to. It's I can't believe it. You say something like this, I can't believe God has given me his word. I get to, I get to read it. I can't believe that I, I can actually, because of Christ, I can actually fully, finally approach God. I can, I can let my request be made known. I can't believe I can confess my sin and I can find forgiveness. I, I can't believe that I can be changed and transformed. I can't believe that I get to love other people. I get to actually use all of the freedom that I have to serve other people. This is the freedom Christ has called us to. Because think about it, Jesus Christ is the greatest example of this. He doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already done. Jesus Christ was, was and is the most free person ever. When it was God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in heaven, perfect unity, perfect freedom, he says he doesn't use his freedom to be selfish, he uses his freedom to serve us. And Jesus Christ, though he was free, came to earth as a man, took on flesh. That as, as, even though he was free, he allowed himself to be chained. Even though he was free, he let, allowed himself to experience an unjust trial in a crucifixion, the most painful and excruciating death possible. He became chained so that we could ultimately become free. He suffered the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven, not just forgiven, but free, not just free from the penalty of sin, but free from the power, free from the pollution, and one day free from the presence of sin. This is the freedom we've been called to. Here's the truth. The world's freedom is so fragile. I think that's one of the things that we've learned in this COVID-19 crisis. That the world's freedom is so fragile, it's like, okay, we th- fi- financial freedom, economic freedom, whatever you want to call it, is very, very fragile. It can be here one day, gone the next. The stock market goes down, or you lose your job, or the medical bills, bills pile up. Not just that, so much of, of what the world's freedom is connected to is their own health. It, well, you're a healthy person, so you feel free, but as you age, or as illness and injury come your way, or to those you love, you're going to realize maybe you don't have as much of the freedom that you thought. It is so fragile. It's only in Christ that we have both a quality of freedom to have a relationship with God and to be reunited with people, but a quantity of freedom. It's the only freedom that lasts not just in this life, but also in the life to come. That's the power of it. And so if you're here listening right now and you're not a Christian, I just want to encourage you that you can trust Christ. You can give Jesus your sin and yourself, and you can. It can happen in a moment. You can be free from the penalty of sin. And you can be united with Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. Hey, for everybody else who's watching, you say, I'm a Christian. Where do you need to take the next step in your life to overcome the power and the pollution of sin? Let me tell you, it's probably by letting somebody else know about it. It's probably by walking in the light, which means at least letting one person who you know, love, and trust into your life to say, I'm going to need fellowship, I'm going to need partnership, I'm going to need accountability in walking through this. And then finally, there are some of you who are in a unique season of suffering. And what the, what the cross says to us in suffering is that one day we will be free from all of the, those who, of us who trust in Christ, we will be free from all of the consequences of sin, which is the suffering that we have to deal with because of our own sin, because of the sin of others, or just because we live in a sinful and broken world. 
but we can look forward to the day where we can be with Christ, free from the presence of sin and all of its consequences. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you for freedom. We thank you that you have every person who's ever trusted in you, you've set their soul free. I pray for anybody right now who that needs to happen for them. That before I'm done praying, they can become a Christian. Because they want to give you their sin, they want to give you themselves, they want to transfer trust, they want to admit their need, they want to ask you to pay for the penalty of sin for them. Lord, I pray for couples and individuals and families together to fight against the power and the pollution of sin. Lord, this is why we have the local church. We need to walk with each other in this fight and in this struggle. Lord, and, and give us, in a season where everything's so different and so shaken, give us an eternal perspective that sees beyond this life into heaven where we see that every Christian will one day be free from the presence of sin and all of its consequences. We hope for that day and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.